science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, maturbium, Welcome aboard! And of course, uh, happy Father's Day to all the fathers uh, celebrating today. And uh, we start out with my usual questions. The first one, what country in the world has the highest percentage of men who sit down when they pee? So what country in the world has the highest percentage of men who sit down when they pee? That's one of our starter questions here. And the other one, in the process of mummification, what was the only organ the Egyptians left in the body? I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill's Office for Science and Society. My background is in chemistry. And as I love to tell you, I believe that chemistry is the thread that ties the sciences together because it is the study of matter and the changes that matter undergoes. And that basically involves everything in the world and essentially in the universe, which is, of course, why I find chemistry so uh, interesting. But, you know, in spite of my curiosity about how things work, especially when it comes to chemistry, uh, I've never been motivated to really look into tattoos. Now, why is that? Well, I tell you honestly, I, I uh, being a, a child of a Holocaust survivor, uh, to me, tattoos were always associated with, you know, the Nazi atrocity of, of uh, marking prisoners at Auschwitz uh, with the uh, tattoo on the left forearm. And incidentally, it was um, uh, only at Auschwitz, not the other camps where this uh, procedure was carried out. And uh, it wasn't only Jews who were uh, so uh, labeled. In fact, the first tattoos at Auschwitz were on uh, Soviet prisoners of war, although that mostly was uh, on their on their chest. So, I, you know, I've never been keen to to you know look into this this particular history because uh, it uh, kind of up, uh, upsets me to look into anything to do with the Holocaust. Anyway. Recently, though, my apathy for tattoos uh, was replaced with a keen interest. And it has nothing to do with, you know, watching sports on TV, which I do all the time. And I see the athletes and the pop stars, you know, totally uh, covered in, in tattoos, <laughs> some of them seemingly from top to bottom. Uh, that's not what got my interest. What uh, I did discover was that tattoos can be a remarkable tool for science education. And I discovered this in, in a very interesting fashion. I came across a rather remarkable book. It's called Science Inc., I-N-K. And uh, the author is uh, Carl Zimmer, a well-known science writer. And the book has the subtitle, Tattoos of the Science Obsessed. It is an absolutely fascinating book. Zimmer, it seems, once blogged about meeting a couple of scientists who had tattoos that reflected their research interests. 
uh, a neurobiologist, uh, his arm was decorated with the double helix of DNA. And there was an evolutionary biologist who was bedecked with an ancient fish that was on the path of leaving the water for dry land. And uh, to uh, Zimmer, this uh, seemed uh, really interesting. And uh, this blog then triggered an onslaught of pictures of tattoos from the, quote, science obsessed, with stories about how they had chosen their particular artwork. There were mathematicians, physicists, chemists, biologists, astronomers, neuroscientists, paleontologists, and they all submitted designs. And these designs range from Schrodinger's cat, Einstein's equation, uh, to neurons affected by Lou Gehrig's disease, and an electrocardiogram that depicts a heart attack. Anyway, Zimmer realized he had something of interest here, and he cataloged some 230 images of tattoos, along with stories of how the tattooees came to choose their particular adornments. And then for each entry, he added his own comments to further bring, further bring the science to life. The result of all of this is a book that offers a fascinating overview of science that appeals to experts and to neophytes alike. Where else are you going to learn that scientists who discovered a 3.2 million year old skeleton that they named Lucy, uh, and they named her Lucy because they had been listening to Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds by the Beatles? Or where else would you find out how the tattoo on the arm of an amateur herpetologist uh, of a North Brazilian boa constrictor uh, leads to a story of a man who was bathing his pet boa when it attacked and bit him in the face and would not let go until a fireman cut the snake's head off. <laughs> a policeman who first arrived at the scene was of no help because he was ophidiophobic. And you can learn something there too. That word means a fear of snakes. All right, now on to the uh, science of tattoos. Uh it is almost obligatory to begin with the story of the 1991 discovery uh, of the 5,300-year-old freeze-dried body of Ötzi by two hikers in the Ötzl Alps in Austria. Uh, Ötzi had tattoos all over his body that researchers determined were made by sprinkling ashes into cuts on the skin. And that's essentially the way that black tattoos are created today. But instead of incisions with a sharp tool, Punctures about a millimeter deep are made by the needles of an electric machine that can vibrate up to a few thousand times a minute. And each insertion delivers a small amount of pigment into the dermis. And that's the layer of the skin just below the top layer, which, of course, is the epidermis. Now, a pigment is a colored substance that is insoluble in water, unlike a dye, which is soluble. And tiny particles of soot, in the case of black tattoo ink that compose the pigments. And to be delivered into the skin, the pigment has to be suspended in a carrier, typically composed of water, isopropyl alcohol, glycerin, witch hazel, and an acrylic resin. Now, witch hazel is a flowering plant, an extract of which is supposedly useful in reducing skin irritation, but the evidence is weak. And the acrylic resin prevents the pigment from migrating into surrounding tissues. Colors other than black use different pigments, 
either derived from minerals like titanium dioxide for white, iron oxide for reddish brown, or they're synthesized from petroleum distillates in the lab. Now, of course, uh, uh, as one would think, uh, unless you have, you know, really sterile conditions, you can get uh, uh, infections from tattoos. Uh, you can get dermatological uh, reactions, allergic uh, reactions. But, uh, you know, scientists hadn't been too interested in, in tattoos until the 1990s when adorning the skin began to soar in popularity. Then all of a sudden, there were all kinds of studies that uh, uh, that came out. Uh, unfortunately, there are no regulations about the ingredients in the tattoo ink, unlike, you know, drugs or, or even cosmetics. Uh, black is the most popular pigment, and that's why it has received the most attention. It's, it's basically soot. And it's a uh, result of uh, com- combusting coal, petroleum, or vegetable matter in an incomplete fashion. And it's a complex mixture of many, many compounds, some of which, like polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, they're known to be carcinogenic. And... Um, there are a number of additives also that are used in in uh, in the ink. Uh, dibutophthalate, for example, uh, that um, allows the ink to flow more smoothly, and that's been labeled an endocrine disruptor. Uh, the azo pigments and in colored inks can break down un- under ultraviolet light to form potentially toxic substances. Now. Really, nobody has given, uh, you know, too much uh, attention to uh, tattoos causing cancer because obviously the tattoos seem to be permanent so that the pigment stays where, you know, it should stay. However, recently it has been determined uh, that uh, some of the um, pigments, especially nanoparticles from carbon black, have shown up in lymph nodes at locations quite remote from the uh, tattoo. Now, of course, uh, it's not a huge concern uh, because uh, these amounts would be very, very small. But nevertheless, it is something that merits further investigation. And I think we need more information about exactly what the composition of these tattoo inks uh, is. Do they cause systemic cancer? It's a, At this point, that we just have no data about that. Uh, because nobody has done a study of uh, cancer patients investigating whether or not they have had a tattoo or not. And maybe something that is something that uh, uh, needs to be done. All right, so there's a primer on tattoos for you and uh, that book by uh, Carl Zimmer uh, about, uh, you know, the whole range of uh, tattoos on arms of scientists, legs of scientists is an amazing book. And I would uh, very highly recommend it because you will learn a great deal of science by looking at those tattoos and reading all of the entries. So it seems the question about uh, the percentage of men who sit down to urinate wasn't that challenging because a number of you have texted in the correct answer. And the answer is uh, Germany. Uh, about 40% of men in Germany sit down every time they pee, and only about 10% never do. How is that? Why are Germans uh, so much more uh, 
in love with sitting down when they do their business? Well, it seems that it is due to a device that was put on the market in 2004, which is placed under the toilet seat. And when a man lifts the seat in, in order to, to pee, the device starts talking and requests that the seat be put back down and that the gentleman assume a sitting position. Now, why is that? Uh, apparently, there are two reasons for that. Uh, one, of course, as uh, most people know, not all men aim uh, exactly. And there uh, tends to be some sprinkling outside of, of the bowl. And the other is for health reasons, because when you sit down, the bladder empties uh, uh, totally. And uh, that means that uh, this is really beneficial for people who have prostate problems and also means that you'll have to go to the bathroom to urinate less often. In second place, we are in Germany, is Sweden. 22% of men sit down. Then comes Denmark with 19%. And Canada is in number fourth place. 16% of us sit down every time. 19% 19% sit down most of the time, 23% sometimes, 19% rarely, and 21% never. So, percent of Canadians will at least sometime sit down to, uh, to pee. Uh, at the bottom of the list is Mexico, where only 6% sit down. Uh, the U.S. is near the bottom, also with 10%. Uh, so it's sort of an uh, interesting uh, statistic, and uh, you can use this as some sort of trivia question next time that you play uh, trivia. All right, but I still have the other question uh, outstanding. In the process of mummification, what was the only organ the Egyptians left in the body? So I'm looking for an answer to that. But uh, right now, we also have Naveen on the line. Hello, Naveen. Hello? Okay, I think uh, Naveen has uh, has disappeared. All right. Uh, something else that I, I do want to talk about, bring your attention to, because it has been in the news extensively this past week. And that was taurine. Taurine, uh, deficiency as a driver of aging. And that was the alluring title of a study that was published uh, this week. Anytime you talk about something being the driver of aging, that gets a lot of attention. Well, up till now, it was really only people who were reading the uh, label on Red Bull, of course, the, the famous energy drink, who were familiar with the chemical. Red Bull, and just an aside, uh, Red Bull is leading the Formula One race in Montreal right now. Verstappen is in, uh, is in first place and, uh, quite a bit ahead of, uh, Fernando Alonso. So it looks like, you know, Verstappen is going to pull it off, uh, once more. And I think he's already won five races this, uh, uh, this year. So, uh, yeah, Red Bull is into all kinds of things, including F1 racing. Anyway, why does Red Bull, the beverage, contain taurine? And that is somewhat of a mystery. The only information provided on Red Bull's website 
is that taurine is an amino acid naturally occurring in the human body and present in the daily diet. Well, I don't have any argument with that, except maybe, well, maybe a little one. Taurine is not exactly an amino acid. It's an amino sulfonic acid. And unlike common amino acids, it is not incorporated into proteins. Uh, it's found in a diet, right? It's found in fish and meat. And while it has many important biochemical functions in the body, it is not an essential component of the diet because the body can make it. We can make it from cysteine, which is an amino acid that is indeed readily available from proteins in, in the diet. And it was back in 1827 that German chemist Friedrich Tiedemann and Leopold Gmelin first isolated a compound from bull bile uh, that came to be called taurine from the ancient Greek word for bull or ox. And a bull certainly conjures up an image of energy, which may be the reason that taurine was incorporated into the beverage. Uh, that, in a curious way, justifies the logo of two bulls charging at each other on every can of Red Bull, despite the fact that there's no evidence of taurine being a stimulant. The only stimulant in Red Bull is caffeine, and there isn't all that much of it in there, less than in a cup of uh, of coffee. Anyway, now about this study, which indeed was uh, an interesting one. And it was stimulated with the fact that blood levels of taurine tend to decrease with age in, in humans. That has been known. And uh, that brought up the, the question of what, whether or not taurine has a causative role in disease or in aging. And this was worth exploring. And that's what the researchers did in this paper. Worms, mice, and rhesus monkeys were fed taurine, and they were compared in various ways with worms, mice, and monkeys who did not receive the compound. And the lifespan of the worms and mice increased significantly in the case of mice. Females and males lived 10% and 12% longer, respectively. And since uh, monkeys live much longer than mice, uh, we won't know if they live longer because we'll have to wait for follow-up studies to see if the monkeys also live longer. Uh, but there was something else that was seen in the monkeys. Uh, and that is something that the researchers called the health span. They, they monitored things like markers of inflammation, uh, DNA damage, fraying of chromosomes, uh, improved function mitochondria. Uh, I mean, all of this is... is is, you know, they're markers of health. So it turned out that the monkeys who were given taurine seemed to be healthier than, uh, than the others. So what, what do we make of this? Uh, so far, nothing, because there have been no human clinical studies, and the amounts of taurine that were used in the studies in the animals were far, far, far greater than what we get in the diet or indeed what we could get in taurine supplements. So there's no point in starting to guzzle Red Bull to, to get some more taurine. You'd have to drink 63 cans a day to equal the dose given to the test animals. If it turns out that human clinical trials show a benefit of taurine, then we can start thinking about recommending the taking of supplements. But until then, this is just an interesting study that should boost further research but I think it would be a mistake to jump on the bandwagon and start taking taurine supplements with the hope that they are going to do the same thing in the human body that they do in worms. 
because basically we are not large worms. All right. I think we have Kenny on the line. Kenny. Hi. Got to do it. Happy Father's Day, uh, Joe. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Yesterday was raining. Today was a bit, uh, I don't know, cloudy. Yeah. Yeah. You got an answer for me? Yeah. For the modification, uh, for the question? Yes. Yeah, they, they they left the heart in, heart in place, heart, part of the uh, organ, exactly. heart. Exactly, exactly. All right, uh, let me uh, go on with uh, the backgrounder to this story. Uh, you say the word mummy, and where does our mind go? Immediately, it's transported back to ancient Egypt, right? And the days of the dead pharaohs wrapped in linen. Well, how did such an unusual practice originate? The Egyptians believed in immortality, and central to this belief was the idea that at death the soul left the body only to return at some later time to reclaim and resurrect the remains. Obviously, during the waiting period, the body which housed the soul, particularly the heart, is where the soul was thought to live, had to be preserved somehow. Anyway, the process of putrefaction starts soon after death. As oxygen distribution by the blood grinds to a halt and the immune system ceases to be active, microorganisms like bacteria, fungi, begin to attack and break down the tissues. Anaerobic organisms, which have a heyday in the absence of oxygen, quickly lead to an overpowering smell as proteins decompose to yield a variety of odiferous compounds with delightful names like cadaverine, and putrescine. The latter substance, also known as tomaine, is slightly poisonous and is found in decaying flesh from all animals. So any method which prevents the growth of microorganisms can be used to preserve the body. Alcohol works. Indeed, the body of Lord Nelson was returned to England after the Battle of Trafalgar in a cask of brandy. A sugar solution can also act as a preservative. Just ask Alexander the Great, who made his final return to Macedonia from Babylon in a container of honey. But perhaps the best preservation technique is dehydration. Like any other form of life, the organisms responsible for decay require water to survive. The ancient Egyptians undoubtedly became aware of this when they noted that corpses buried in the dry sand of the desert didn't decompose. A little experimentation revealed that natron, a naturally occurring mixture of sodium carbonate, bicarbonate, sodium sulfate, and sodium chloride, found along the banks of lakes in the vicinity of Cairo, worked even better than sand at dehydrating a body. So the mummification process was born. The internal organs, where putrefaction was known to start, were removed and the body cavities washed with a disinfecting solution of wine and spices. The brain was removed through the nostrils and discarded. Apparently, there would be no need for it in the afterlife. The heart, which is the seed of the soul, was left in the body, but the other organs were separately pickled in jars, supposedly to be reassembled at the time of resurrection. The whole body was then packed in natron for at least 40 days to dehydrate it and then was wrapped in cotton and finally dipped in a gummy resin. The mummy was then finished. But uh, as far as we know, 
only in the movies have mummies come back to life. Has the failure of mummies to sit up and walk out of their tombs put an end to the mummy business? Nope. A society in the U.S. known as Summum Bonum is offering high-tech mummification. Chemical preservatives along with fiberglass and polyethylene wraps may be just what yuppies are looking for to ensure that their bodies immaculately sculptured by years of aerobic exercise are not going to be defiled by those nasty anaerobic microbes. However, this uh, process is not cheap, but I think it's cheaper than um, being frozen in liquid nitrogen. So anyway, there you go. There's the story of mummies and the uh, and the heart. All right, so our questions now have been answered. So I think I better ask another one. What is a solution made by combining hydrochloric and nitric acids in a four to one ratio called? What would that be called? If we take hydrochloric acid and nitric acid, combine them in a four to one ratio, uh, what do we call it? Okay, if you know the answer, you can call us at 514-790-800 or text at 514-800. All right, let's uh, go on and talk about some other uh, uh, interesting uh, stuff. Um, solubility differences. Solubility is a very important concept in, in, in science. As, as I mentioned uh, uh, earlier when we were talking about tattoos, uh, the prime characteristic of a pigment is that it does not dissolve in water. Uh, that's why you need some sort of carrier in which to suspend it when it is going to be injected in, uh, as uh, tattoo uh, ink. Uh, but let me tell you another uh, story. A Texas teenager poisoned her father because he would not let her go to live with her mother. The girl had read that barium was poisonous and stole some barium acetate from her school's chemistry lab. She put a spoonful into her father's burrito and beans. Unfortunately for her father, the girl had stolen a soluble barium compound, which proved to be lethal. Had she taken barium sulfate, nothing would have happened. Barium sulfate is actually used in medicine because it is opaque to x-rays. It's the white stuff a patient is given to drink before a gastrointestinal x-ray. Barium sulfate is extremely insoluble in water and therefore cannot get into the bloodstream as eventually excreted in the feces. Barium acetate, on the other hand, is extremely poisonous because it readily dissolves in the blood. So, it certainly uh, was important to know uh, about uh, solubility when it comes to uh, studying toxicology. And uh, uh, again, it brings me back to the story of the tattoos that we started the program with today uh, when we were talking about uh, the the pigments and and, uh, exploring the possibility that there may be some toxic uh, uh, reaction. And um, uh, although the pigments are not soluble in in water and therefore they're not soluble in lymph, which is sort of the drainage symptom of of the body, uh, nevertheless, the pigments can break down into tiny particles. We call them nanoparticles. And uh, even though these are not soluble, they can be carried away 
either by the uh, lymph system or by the blood system. And the, the evidence is that there have been traces of these uh, uh, tiny carbon black particles found in uh, uh, lymph nodes. That doesn't mean necessarily that, you know, this is a huge problem because, you know, it's always a question of of, of dosage. But because uh, carbon black is composed of of really, you know, hundreds of different compounds, some of which are these so-called polyaromatic uh, uh, cyclic hydrocarbons, which are known to be carcinogens, so at least you know you you raise a bit of an eyebrow when you find out that they're uh, present in the body at uh, you know positions remote from where the tattoo is. Now obviously there can't be too much of it floating around in the body because we know that tattoos last a very long time, right? And if the uh, if the pigments were decomposing and spreading all over the body, uh, of course that would be uh, that couldn't mean that the tattoos are, are then permanent, right? Because the tattoo would be disappearing. But um, nevertheless, we do know that that it takes only, you know, a tiny insult to DNA somewhere in the body to trigger the process of cancer. So it can't totally be ruled out. And I think this is something that needs to be pursued. Well, there's uh, joy at Red Bull because Max Verstappen uh, is on top of the podium, uh, winning again. I think this is probably the sixth race of the of the season, so he really is way ahead. Uh, but uh, there's some good news for Canadians. Uh, Lawrence Stroll came in ninth, which is it's pretty good. I mean, anything in the top ten is good. Uh, so uh, yeah. Uh, not bad for uh, Lawrence uh, Stroll. All right. Uh, interesting text about uh, my uh, question about the uh, heart and the mummy being too easy to Google. Well, I got to smile about that because the, the whole purpose of uh, these questions is to see if you know them without Googling, right? Um of course, these days you can Google just about anything and, and find the answer. It's, it's really quite amazing how uh, quickly one can, uh, one can do that. But, you know, it's really neat if you actually know the answer without Googling. And I think uh, James, of course, who gives us answers uh, very often, I, I think uh, he knows most of this without uh, Googling. And he did come up with the uh, right answer for aqua regia uh, or for the question that I asked about the 4 to 1 ratio of hydrochloric nitric acid, which, of course, is called aqua regia or royal water. Uh, uh, this solution dissolves gold. And that's why it was of great interest to alchemists in the Middle Ages. Uh, when you combine the hydrochloric and nitric acid, there's an immediate reaction. And the mixture begins to produce a yellow fume of uh, nitrosyl chloride, uh, NOCL, for those of you who are interested in the chemistry, uh, as well as uh, some free chlorine. And the solution then resembles the color of gold. And the alchemists thought that gold could be produced in this fashion. The fact that the mixture was actually able to dissolve gold strengthened the idea that it was capable of harboring the metal. Well, aquaregia first appeared in the 14th century, and it was made by adding sal ammoniac, as it was called, that's ammonium chloride, to nitric acid. 
And the preparation of aquaregia by directly mixing hydrochloric acid and nitric acid only became possible after the discovery in the late 16th century of the process by which hydrochloric acid can be produced. The nitric acid must be added to the hydrochloric acid so that the heat produced by the reaction can be dissipated by the larger volume of hydrochloric acid. Now, I tell you a very interesting connection here with aquaregia. When Germany invaded Denmark in World War II, Hungarian chemist George de Hevesy dissolved the gold Nobel Prizes of German physicists Max von Loewe and James Frank in aquaregia to prevent the Nazis from confiscating them. The German government had prohibited Germans from accepting or keeping any Nobel Prize after jailed peace activist Karl von Ossetsky had received the Nobel Prize in 1935. De Hevesy placed the resulting solution on a shelf in his laboratory at the Niels Bohr Institute. It was subsequently ignored by the Nazis, who thought the jar, one of perhaps hundreds on the shelves, contained common chemicals. After the war, the Hevesy returned to find the solution undisturbed and precipitated the gold out of the acid. The gold was returned to the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences and the Nobel Foundation. They recast the medals and again presented them to Loewe and Frank. So that, I think, is a you know pretty fascinating story about uh, the use of uh, aqua regia. Uh, one has to be very careful about handling aqua regia in the lab. It is extremely, extremely caustic. And uh, as you can imagine, uh, because it can uh, even dissolve gold, it can dissolve, uh, you know, almost uh, anything else. <clears throat> okay, uh, let's find something else that is interesting to uh, to talk about. Uh, you know, I, I constantly promotions see promotions about alkaline water. And it's particularly these promotions are, are, are from sellers of uh, ridiculous water alkalizer machines that can cost thousands of dollars, three to four thousand dollars. Well, yeah, the machine does produce water, has an alkaline pH, meaning above seven, uh, due to the presence of hydroxide ions that are produced by the process of electrolysis, which is exactly what those machines do. They break water at least some of the water down into to hydrogen and oxygen and also form some hydroxyl ions. But any talk about hydroxide ions having any physiological effect is scientifically implausible for the simple reason that they're immediately neutralized by stomach acid. There's no way they can affect blood pH, which in any case is a buffered system and is maintained at a pH between 7.35 and 7.45. There's a small amount of hydrogen gas also produced at the cathode, but hydrogen is extremely insoluble. So the amount that ends up in the alkaline water is only a trace and uh, hardly any of that is absorbed into the, into the bloodstream. The only reason I even mention uh, this is because they, the makers of these machines uh, argue that hydrogen is an antioxidant and does all kinds of wonderful things in the body by neutralizing free radicals. Well, indeed, hydrogen is an antioxidant, but the amount introduced by alkaline water is insignificant. One bite of an apple will provide far more antioxidant activity 
than drinking a swimming pool full of alkaline water. So how come people claim benefits? That, of course, is due to the placebo effect. And then there is also what we call the regression to the mean, which basically means that the human condition is variable. If you feel better, you give credit to whatever intervention you used. If you don't feel better, you don't mention it. And this is something that we encounter all the time, whether we're talking about uh, alkaline water, whether we're talking about, you know, whatever dietary supplement or herbal pill or uh, a homeopathic, quote, remedy. Any of these will have proponents claiming that they are the key to health. And that is because, as I said, uh, the human body has its ups and downs, and so do many diseases. And especially, you know, when it comes to, to conditions like arthritis or some uh, gastrointestinal uh, conditions, on some days you feel better, on some days you feel worse. And if you happen to take one of these uh, supplements or drink some alkaline water and you feel better the next day, uh, then you give credit to that. And of course, if you don't uh, feel better, you don't go around telling people about uh, your experience. So the uh, placebo effect is a very, very important effect in, uh, in, in medicine. And I don't want to, you know, sweep it under the carpet. Uh, it's not, you know, this idea that you only feel better because, it, you know, it's coming from the mind and it's all in the mind, etc. Uh, so what? So what if it's all in the, uh, as long as you feel better, that's what you're after. The only problem is that if you um, take something and you feel better because of the placebo effect, it may never get further investigated. And there actually may be some physiological reason underneath that can be uh, treated. Anyway, it's, uh, you know, uh, the placebo effect is interesting and we know the tremendous role that the mind plays uh, uh, on our health. Well, that's it. We've run out of time once more, but uh, fear not. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. And until we meet again, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>